There have been two stories about Sinn Féin recently that tell us a lot about the party's fortunes here in the Republic of Ireland and about how far the party has come from the days when it just had one single TD in Doyle Éireann. Firstly, an Irish Times poll recently gave Sinn Féin its best ever result. 35% of voters now say they support the party. The party has broadened its appeal to include older middle class voters. Among those aged 35 and upwards, Sinn Féin attracts a significant 31% of the vote. If an election was held today, Mary Lou Macdonald would probably be the next Taoiseach. Then, a small hiccup. Let's get the door. A comedy sketch video appeared online featuring former Sinn Féin president and Republican leader Gerry Adams. Tis the season to be jolly, chucky la 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 la. Hugh, outrage from other political parties over the use of phrases some associate with the IRA like chucky law and especially... They haven't gone away, you know. They haven't gone away, you know. You know, Jerry Adams apologising about a video um, that went viral is not the apology that I'd like to hear from Sinn Féin. The apology that I'd like to hear from Sinn Féin uh, is them accepting that the killing of children and civilians by the IRA in our lifetime was wrong. Pat Leahy is the Irish Times political editor. Pat, things like this crop up every once in a while. People complain, politicians from other parties say it's a disgrace. But Sinn Féin's support keeps on rising. Is it time for other parties to stop attacking Sinn Féin about the past because it kind of seems like a losing strategy? I think they will continue to attack Sinn Féin about the past. And yes, it is a losing strategy because the people who object to Sinn Féin because of their support and participation in some cases in the IRA's campaign, those people are already not voting for Sinn Féin. The people that care about that a lot are very unlikely to vote for Sinn Féin. And there is a whole generation. And you can look at, you know, Sinn Féin is in the 40s in terms of percentage support amongst people aged between 18 and 35. There is a whole swathe of Southern voters who either do not know or do not care about Sinn Féin's support for the IRA. Sinn Féin will never disavow the armed struggle. They will never disavow the hunger strikers. It will never walk away from its own history. Though I guess it will want to talk more about the future and its plans for the future than it does about the past. I'm Sarah Chapalak and this is In The News. Today we look at Sinn Féin's rise to become Ireland's number one political party and ask, will that support continue if they lead the next government? I am honoured to stand here today as a deputy for the people of Cavan and Monaghan and as a representative of Sinn Féin, the party of which I am proud to be a member. So Pat, can we take a jump back to 1997, nearly a quarter of a century ago, when Cuivi Noquelon became the first elected Sinn Féin member who was prepared to take his seat in Doyle. The partition of our country and Britain's occupation of the six northeastern counties is the single greatest problem facing us as a people today. What kind of political party was Sinn Féin in the Republic at that time? And how was it viewed by voters then? Well, it's very, very different. Um, 1997, the armed struggle, to give it the title that uh, Republicans would give it, is still underway 
at that stage and Sinn Féin and the IRA are part of the same broad Republican movement and there's many, many links, of course, between the two sides of the Republican movement then. It is moving towards a political strategy and that movement has been going on for some time but it is very tentative and incremental at that stage. This is before the Good Friday Agreement, remember, a year before the Good Friday Agreement. Its position has not shifted massively in terms of where it is with the public in over the over the previous two decades. Sinn Féin, politically speaking, is a tiny niche party at that stage. It hasn't grown beyond that small niche of people who are supporters of the IRA's armed campaign. And that has always been a, uh, a very small minority in, uh, in the Republic. And as we've referenced, the party only had that one TD in 1997. In 2002, that rose to five. Then it dropped to four in 2007. But it has steadily increased in every election since then. What was it back then that changed in the political landscape that allowed Sinn Féin to grow into the party that we now see today? The first and most important thing which dwarfs all the other reasons is the peace strategy. This is another opportunity for peace which was put together after an awful lot of difficulties. It's our view that the vast majority of people want it built upon. That's our commitment. That's our focus. It's the ceasefires. It's the Good Friday Agreement. And it is the pursuit of an exclusively political strategy that is the transformative thing for Sinn Féin uh, at that stage. The other big winners in this election, Sinn Féin, say that they will have a clear role on the opposition benches. We're there to deliver on the mandate which we have received. I think when historians come back to look at it in decades hence, they will see that very definite progression from a political organisation which backs the armed struggle to a political organisation devoted to exclusively political, peaceful and democratic means. That doesn't happen overnight. There is certainly a period where Sinn Féin is riding both horses, but over a period of time, which is, you know, perhaps, you know, has some way to go. The party becomes a more normal democratic party comparable to some uh, to some of its rivals. What I mean when I say that that process may not be completed, you know, it is very unusual for a political party to have the same leader for over 30 years as Jerry Adams was. Sinn Féin is not, yes, the same as the other parties. And I'm sure they would take that perhaps as a compliment. But it is on a, a journey, I apologise for the term, but it's on a journey towards becoming a more normal uh, political party that would be practically unrecognisable to the party that it was in, in 1997. Sinn Féin policies were also evolving and changing. What issues have they pushed back now? The issues that they most likely wouldn't put on the agenda these days for fear perhaps of losing supporters? You go back again 20 years, Sinn Féin would have identified itself as a revolutionary socialist party, you know, in terms of its socioeconomic policies, you know, it was in favour of leaving the EU. It's no longer in favour of that. It was in favour of nationalising many industries. It's no longer in favour of that. And their, their economic policies and social policies at the time would have been much closer to where the radical left parties of uh, people before profit solidarity are now than Sinn Féin is. 
Sinn Féin is a political party. So, of course, there have been issues along the way which have caused bumps in the road in their rise and their progression over the last 20 years. What for you, Pat, are the main scandals that stick out from you over the past two decades when it comes to Sinn Féin? If you're going back as far ago as 20 years ago, you would look at things like, you know, the Northern Bank robbery and the murder of Robert McCartney, which was very difficult for the Republican movement to deal with, because these were clearly things that had been carried out with the approval of what remained of the IRA's leadership. And because of that, emphasised the enduring role of the IRA leadership in the Republican movement and by extension over Sinn Féin. So that was a very difficult period for the party to weather and I think probably accelerated the retirement of the active influence of senior Republican figures uh, over the party. So our electoral system in Ireland, it's very much about finding the right type of candidates when it comes to general elections. What kind of people was Sinn Féin putting forward in the 2000s to build up the support we've been talking about? We've talked about that demilitarisation process. That process is going on while the party is trying to build its local organisation. Because you go back to 1997, the party is still a patchwork in some constituencies, typically those that would have a strong Republican tradition, like around the border counties and Kerry, and then the working class areas of Dublin. Those were the places where it won seats because those were the places where it had a strong local organisation. So what it does is it tries to build where it wasn't previously strong before, parish by parish, town by town, village by village, constructing a local organisation and finding the right sort of candidates. And you ask about candidates, and it's, it's a really good question because the Irish political system is so candidate-centric that it's absolutely vital for parties to get the right sort of candidates. And typically your Sinn Féin candidate 25 years ago would have been a party stalwart who may have been in the IRA. You think of people like, you know, Martin Ferris, Desi Ellis... Whereas now your typical Sinn Féin candidate is somebody who is university educated, has worked for the party as a, as a researcher, has served as maybe a local councillor. So this generational transition, which is terribly important for the party and has been conducted most obviously at leadership level with great care and preparation, also takes place throughout the party taking over from a man she calls a political giant. Mary Lou MacDonald paid tribute to Gerry Adams, who became Sinn Féin president when she was a teenager. So, Pat, three years ago in 2018, Mary Lou MacDonald took over as leader of the party when Gerry Adams stepped down after more than three decades in that position. How important was that move and putting Mary Lou at the helm? I mean, it was clearly really important for the party to make its pitch to a more middle-class audience, a younger audience. You would look at Sinn Féin's numbers now, and we speak in the wake of that opinion poll, but also the last general election, I suppose, which is a real measure of these things, you would say it has been a, a huge success. Let us not forget, though, that six months before, seven months before that general election, there was a sense of 
deep nervousness in Sinn Féin about Mary Lou Macdonald's leadership because she had just undergone a very difficult and disappointing local and European elections where the party lost a clatter of seats. What has happened? You've had your vote in Dublin. I think there's only one councillor returned in your party leaders' constituencies. Big loss in Cork, Galway, Louth, Monaghan, Cavan. You're on 10% of the vote. Yeah, as it was saying, we need to dust ourselves down and we need to live... That was her third bad election after the presidential election and uh, the Northern uh, Assembly election before that. And there was this sense of, Jesus, this, you know, the transition hasn't worked or is not working. But then she had a brilliant election campaign in 2020, which caught the party by surprise as much as it did everybody else. People may recall that only... Days before the election was called, Sinn Féin was taking people off its tickets because it was afraid that it wouldn't get enough votes to justify multiple candidates in some constituencies. As it turned out, of course, as everybody knows, they didn't run enough candidates to capitalise on their share of the vote. Uh, Sinn Féin went to the people and and we convinced them in very, very large numbers that we are the alternative, that we are the vehicle for change. A lot of that was due to its message of change resonating in that campaign with a lot of voters, particularly young voters. But it also was because Mary Lou Macdonald herself turned out to be a really good campaigner and a really good vector for that change message. It seems that the political establishment, uh, and by that I mean Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are still in a state of denial. Um, they're, They're still not listening to what the people have said, and I think... I suppose the real test of Mary Lou Macdonald's leadership will be what happens between now and the next election and then that period after the election. Can she assemble a governing coalition? Because, you know, notwithstanding the fact that Sinn Féin's rise has been spectacular, I can't imagine it winning an overall majority, so she needs coalitions. And then the final challenge, I suppose, is being able to run that coalition government and achieve Sinn Féin's political uh, objectives. And those political objectives in such a coalition would be twofold, I think. One is the programme of social and economic reform that, that, you know, uh, that we referred to earlier. And the other to which we didn't refer is the United Ireland agenda. I think that government will have those twin priorities, one as important to it uh, as the other. So those are the tests ahead of Mary Lou Macdonald. Coming up, Aidan Regan, Associate Professor at UCD School of Politics, on the source of Sinn Féin's appeal and the problems it will have to face if it takes power. I've been a household of uh, Fianna Fáil voters uh, all my life, um, but over the last 10 years I've seen a swing in, in, in the whole family. Uh, my, fa- my father's passed, but the whole family now swing to more Sinn Féin voters. Um, this election, we all vote, every single one of us voted Sinn Féin. My daughter voted Sinn Féin, and she said, I just felt I needed to do that at this point. She said, I'm OK. She said, but for every one of me, there's 100 people out there who are not OK. Aidan, firstly... How has Sinn Féin grown its voter base so quickly over recent years and attracted so many supporters, which has now made it the most popular party in this country? Strategically, it's fairly clear that Sinn Féin have put a lot of emphasis on basic economic issues, which have been salient 
in Irish public opinion for quite some time, but have not really been politicised, probably because no political party has come along and mobilised on those key issues. So central to what they say and do, uh, obviously, is housing. And it's not just housing, it's housing inequality. It's unequal access to housing. It's about housing affordability. So they're clearly drawing a line between those who have and those who do not have. Um, and I think, you know, one could argue that that kind of attempt to separate the rich from the poor, I think this, this obviously is a very clear kind of left populist strategy, which is working for them very well. We need a government that stands up for renters and stands up for working people, not backs the vested interest in the real estate uh, investment funds and global equity investments. They have put the weight on the economy. They have put the weight on public services, public investment, and they are relentless about it. They, they, they're completely unapolog- unapologetic about it, where a lot of kind of established centre-left parties across Europe who have been in government many times, much like the Labour Party here, you know, they lean a bit more towards technocratic language. They lean a bit more towards technocratic approach to economic issues, probably because they know they've been in government, they've held these ministerial portfolios, they know the difficulties. But Sinn Féin have the luxury of never being in government in the Republic, so they can just present themselves as the alternative, the challenger party to the status quo, and the representative of working families. And this strategy is is very clearly working for them. Sinn Féin is a leftist populist party, as you've mentioned, but it's also nationalist to its core. How did that come about? Is it just an accident of history that the party represents this spread of views? When in other countries across Europe, these views usually stand on the opposite ends of the political spectrum, right? Absolutely. I mean, Sinn Féin are in the, excuse me for using academic language, but in a qualitatively unique position <laughs> vis-a-vis okay. other left-wing parties across Europe in that they're able to combine a kind of cultural nationalist, civic nationalist story with, with an economic leftist policy platform. This space is not available to most left-wing parties. That is obviously very unique to Ireland and we know why that is the case because, you know, being on the left has never been mutually exclusive to having a nationalist identity in Ireland given the kind of the history of kind of nationalist politics being an anti-imperial struggle, anti-colonialism and that's always been kind of overladen with kind of leftist republican ideals and policies. This kind of left republican civic nationalism uh, is clearly a winning strategy. To what extent, though, that nationalist aspect of who they are explains their electoral success or, or their growing popularity, I'm not so sure. I think the anchor of Sinn Féin, you know, until they've begun to grow in the polls, may have been a bit of that, the kind of the flag waving and so forth, the Republican tradition. But their support in the Republic, I don't think, has a whole lot to do with that cultural uh, aspect and that nationalist aspect. I think it's very much their, their economic policy platforms because the data is quite clear in Ireland at the moment, at least the research that I've done with colleagues, there's a very clear left-right polarisation amongst Irish voters. You know, the average Irish voter, the median voter today identifies on the centre-left, objectively, if you give them a set of policy statements. Um, and you might say, well, Labour, why didn't Labour, Social Democrats, Greens, etc., mobilise that space? Well, probably because they didn't pursue that kind of more explicit leftist economic policy strategy, and also because Labour were in government during the peak of the austerity years. That's clearly penalised them. So they are capturing a part of the vote and mobilising that. But I think it's very much on, on economic policy issues. But the cultural national story is certainly part of who they are. And arguably, and we could talk about it, post-Brexit, maybe that has amplified, you know, there's a sense that this kind of the, the green flag and the, the, the Irish identity, you know, has become a little bit more salient because people feel slightly more, again, not easily empirically measurable, 
insecure vis-a-vis the UK, given the rise of English nationalism. Aidan, you wrote in October that Sinn Féin's shine is likely to wear off when it finally enters government. If they do get into power, what difficulties do you think they'll face? Will they be able to keep the policy promises that they've made around housing, property taxes, carbon taxes, and keep their supporters and their voters happy? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think on the tax side, they're going to get into difficulty by promising to kind of cut carbon taxes or abolish carbon taxes, property taxes. They're going to be very quickly confronted with the reality that Ireland's tax base is already extremely narrow. We're heavily dependent upon the income taxes of the top 10, 15% of income earners, wage earners. We're heavily dependent upon the concentrated taxes in the top 10 big multinationals. And, you know, the real challenge for fiscal policy, again, that's the technical technocratic side of governing, is about widening the tax base. But they don't have to think about that technocratic approach at the moment because they can just adopt the narrative, a story, to win an election. But the complexity of governing, the complexity of being in government and having to manage a a complex capitalist economy and trying to combine, you know, fiscal policy with social policy and to match those different things, that that I think will come true. But then the question is, like, will their voters penalise them if they end up compromising on a lot of those issues? I think it depends. On the housing side, for example, I think the electorate has decided already that the housing mess is a responsibility of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. So I think it will be easy for Sinn Féin to say, look, we're dealing with the mess of 20, 30 years of housing policy of them. So I think the electorate will be a little bit more forgiving of Sinn Féin uh, if they don't ultimately deliver on their 100,000 public houses, etc. And they don't actually end up creating and constructing those homes and if affordability doesn't actually become uh, any more affordable. They may get a second round or a second election ultimately at that. But at some point, you know, if they're not able to really solve that problem, and I don't think it can be solved, quite frankly, in one term of office, people will begin to ask serious questions. And what about the promise to pursue a united Ireland to their when it comes to their voters? I mean, we've seen with a recent poll that most Irish people are interested in seeing a united Ireland and would like to see it. But it's very much a long term goal. It's not something that needs to happen straight away. If they go into government and they fail to deliver that or try hard to deliver it in their first term and still don't, do you think it'll impact their support? Yeah, very good question. I think it can go two ways, perhaps. They could end up, for example, again, it depends on which kind of factions and different coalitions within Sinn Féin emerge. But as you can imagine, the grassroots, the activist base, particularly in the border counties and elsewhere, will be putting pressure on the leadership of Sinn Féin to make that the key issue. But that will not be the key issue for people who are voting for them to get into government in the rest of the Republic. So if Sinn Féin end up focusing all their energy and effort and politics and social capital on that issue, which they know they're not going to be able to deliver in any short time frame, as you've already suggested, they may end up losing a lot of that other vote because people may just end up saying, geez, actually, in the end, that's all they were interested in was focusing on a united Ireland. And and in practice, they didn't focus on the real issues that matter to me, which is the kind of economic cost of living issues and all those things that that we, we... you said you were going to solve that we supported. So I think it could go that way. But then maybe, you know, depending on the factions that emerge, they may just end up compromising a lot more on that. They may end up adopting a much more nuanced position, recognise that actually this is something that, that's going to come about by consensus, recognise that ultimately there is a large section of the population on this island, the unionist community, who don't identify with Ireland, don't identify with that polity and have no interest in joining the Republic. And how do you accommodate that 
diversity, I think they're going to have to mature and respond to that reality. Because I think those on the liberal leaning left in Ireland probably have a more nuanced view on that and really are perfectly happy to have people who have a completely different identity living beside them as long as we can both access good public health services and so on. And that's the issue that they would focus on. So I think it'll be interesting to see how Sinn Féin's position on that evolves because it may end up becoming more nuanced. If Sinn Féin take power and assuming they do end up facing some of these difficulties we've discussed, where do you see their level of support going in the long term? I don't think they will continue at that 35, 38%, but they'll probably drop that back down to kind of mid-20s. That would be my, my assumption, at least. And Ireland will probably enter into that space, which is happening all over Europe, of having a multi-party system of maybe two or three parties on 22, 23%, lots of smaller parties varying between 1% and 8%. And the nature of the game then is coalition building. And I think if Sinn Féin can build a coalition on the left and they can go into government with Labour, Social Democrats, Greens, and offer a real genuine social democratic left of centre alternative, I think the electorate will, will, will reward them for that because they'll say this takes time, these policies take time to be implemented, but fundamentally we're making a break with the centre-right policies that have governed the Irish state for the past 100 years. That's all for today. My thanks to our guests Pat Leahy and Aidan Regan. In the News will be back on Wednesday.